Well, good morning, church. All right, ready? Good morning, church. There we go. All right. You know, your second chance will give you plenty of chances, right? God does. We're going to be looking at the life of Joseph here, as been mentioned. Appreciated uh, Cindy's words this morning. Get us right locked in to where we need to be this morning. There were these two Kentucky farmers who owned racing stables and had developed a keen rivalry. One spring, each of them entered a horse in a local steeplechase. One of the farmers, trying to outsmart his competitor, hired a professional jockey, thinking that this would give him an edge. Well, the race began at the last fence. The two horses were neck and neck and with a large lead over the rest of the pack. Suddenly, both horses fell, unseating their riders. But it didn't stop the professional jockey. The professional jockey remounted quickly and rode on to win the race. Returning triumphantly to the paddock, the jockey found the farmer who had hired him fuming with rage. What's the matter, the jockey asked. I won, didn't I? Oh yeah, roared the farmer. You won all right, but you crossed the finish line on the wrong horse. <laughs> Success is meaningless. Unless we're in the right. How do you measure success? You may be gifted with a a sharp mind. You may have been resilient enough to overcome many obstacles in your life to get where you are today. You may be strong as an ox physically. You may have achieved many of your dreams and be considered successful in the eyes of others. But what is the greatest test of true success? All right, look with me at Genesis chapter 39 as we'll unpack the answer this morning. Genesis chapter 39, we can continue in our study on the life of Joseph. And I have chosen uh, to title this sermon series, The Master's Design, for it is God who weaves together all the threads of our lives to accomplish His purposes. Two weeks ago, we saw the thread of a broken home. The thread of a broken home. The home was a mess. Not only did Joseph come from a, a long line of deceit, But he also grew up in a family filled with hatred and anger and and, and jealousy. It was no secret that Joseph was uh, dad's favorite. And while Joseph was far from perfect, he would break family tradition of deceit to practice integrity. And God was not only weaving the thread of a broken home into Joseph's story, but also the thread of adversity. And last week, we saw how Joseph's own dream got him into trouble with his brothers. And ironically, 13 years later, someone else's dreams will get him out of trouble. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We're not there for a few weeks. But we return to the verses we ended with last week in chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning as we look at the thread of success. Thread of broken home, thread of adversity, this morning, thread of success. My first heading this morning is a prosperous man, a prosperous man. We left off with these words from Genesis 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. 
Now Joseph's rise to success traveled through many twists and turns, right? There was the, 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 the surprise attack by his brothers who violently stripped him of his robe and then, and then threw him in a pit. He was then sold to some merchants who brought him into Egypt where he was purchased by Potiphar. It's in that setting that, the Lord, uh, that it speaks of the Lord prospering Joseph as he faithfully served in Potiphar's house. And that's where we pick it up. Genesis 39 verse 3. Genesis 39 verse 3. When his master Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. I want you to notice here that Joseph didn't have to announce that the Lord was with him. Potiphar could see it for himself. Now, might that be a lesson for us? More important than announcing, hey, I, everybody, I'm a Christian. Let others see it for themselves. How? By being faithful. By making the most of the opportunity, the situation you're in. By, by our actions and our speech and, and, and our attitude. I'm not sure what the master saw in Joseph, but he recognized that something out of the ordinary was going on here. And you see, once again, Joseph is the favored one. He found favor with Potiphar. Joseph continued to enjoy the favor of others. It seems like other people liked him. And you have to wonder, might this go to his head? When, when Don and I were first married, we lived um, in western New York, and we were involved as volunteers in a local church. And we were only at this uh, church and in this area for eight months, only for eight months. But in that time, we were well-received as a young couple. And when it came time for us to move from there and, and to go elsewhere, people rallied around us to show their appreciation of our time there and surprised us with so much love and support. In just a short time, we had a lot of people that just kind of liked us. An older, wiser man who only knew me for a few months dared to say to me, he said, Brian, people really like you. You seem to draw the attention of others, and that's a good thing. But watch out that it doesn't go to your head. Success is good, but it can also ruin you if you aren't careful. You know, I, I took offense to those words when he said them. But as I continued to prepare for ministry, those words began to sink deep into my heart. I mean, it may not be in times of adversity that we are most vulnerable. Perhaps it's when we enjoy success, when things are going well. Are the temptations, I wonder, are the temptations that come with success far greater and perhaps more subtle than those that come with adversity? That's why we must never forget the one who's behind our success. The reason for Joseph's prosperity, well, we saw it in verse 2, the Lord was with him and he prospered. Verse 3, when the master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. See the source? Middle of verse 5, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. You see, a real danger of success is we start to think we did it. I mean, he uses us, absolutely. But it's so easy to start giving ourselves too much credit for what God is doing in us and through us. 
Kind of like the, the woodpecker who was pecking against a tree when suddenly this lightning bolt struck the tree, leaving this huge hole. And the woodpecker said, look, wow, look what I did. Look what I did. No, 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 he didn't do it at all. Joseph could have looked at all his success and wow, look what I did. I mean, his career was, was taking off. He moved quickly up the ranks and being in charge of the whole household. He was more than Potiphar's personal assistant. We might see him as a, a COO, a chief operating officer. Joseph was a highly successful businessman because he was such an incredible manager. He had power over Potiphar's entire household. The question is, how would he use that power? As Abraham Lincoln was credited with saying, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And being overtaken by power has been the downfall of many leaders, both inside and outside the church. In an interview with Dan Rather, Bill Clinton said uh, uh, he had an affair with Monica Lewinsky just because I could. Just because I could. Now, obviously, there was more to it than that. But it can be in those powerful positions where leaders make serious blunders. Do you know how to use your power? You can have success in all other areas of your life, but if you aren't successful in handling uh, your power and your success, are you truly successful? Marcus Antonius was one of the most... Um, uh, distinguished Roman orators at the time. He was noted as being a brilliant statesman. He was magnificent in battle. He was courageous. He was strong. And, and he enjoyed much success. He had all the qualities of becoming uh, the ruler of the world. But he had the fatal flaw of moral weakness. Particularly with a certain lady named Cleopatra who wasn't his wife. And this weakness to temptation made him vulnerable as a leader, and he was severely hindered on different occasions as a result. In fact, in fact it actually uh, eventually led to his downfall and his death. And there was supposedly one occasion when his personal tutor turned to him and shouted in his face, O Marcus, O Marcus, O colossal child, able to conquer the world, but unable to resist temptation. Marcus Antonius would agree with the one who said, I can resist anything but temptation. See, you may give the impression that you could conquer the world, but if you cannot handle success, it will be your demise. We can name sports celebrities who mastered their game but could not master temptation. We can think of Hollywood stars, sadly. We can think of evangelists and Christian leaders and pastors of mega churches that we would say have enjoyed success, but how they handle that success will either make or break them. True success is when you know how to use your power to serve others. To serve others. How does Joseph handle it? Well, true test of success is coming up. We come to our second heading this morning, a powerful woman. We had a prosperous man. We have a powerful woman. Uh, Joseph, he, he seems to have a lot going for him, right? He had power. He had authority. He had the respect of his boss. He likely was living in a private room. He had the trust of his employee. And to top it all off, he was a good-looking guy. 
End of verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. Literally it says beautiful of form, beautiful of face. And then verse 7 says, after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph. Now Joseph once again is someone's favorite. He was the favorite son of his father Jacob. He was the favorite employee of Potiphar. Now all of a sudden he becomes the favorite of Potiphar's wife. And it says she took notice of him. Now to notice that Joseph is easy on the eyes isn't the problem. <laughs> to notice someone as beautiful or attractive or handsome, that isn't wrong. But the word for notice here is stronger than that. It means she lifted up her eyes to him. It, it means to, to look at with desire. It means she, she contemplated his good look. She contemplated his great body and, and beautiful face. In her imaginations, she has already slept with him. She attempts to turn that into reality. Look at the end of verse 7. She says to Joseph, come to bed with me. Now that's subtle. The English translation actually loses a little of the forcefulness of her words. In the original, uh, come to bed with me is just a, a one, two-syllable word, shakab. It's like saying, sex now. It'd be like a, a command we would give to our dog. Go, fetch, sit. She isn't asking Joseph to sleep with her. She's demanding it. Part of his wife came, in, came, came on to Joseph in a very aggressive, uh, almost crude way. And there was only one answer to this demand. She was expecting that it would be carried out. Part of his wife was a powerful woman. One commentator put it this way. She presents the matter in terms of power rather than love, of command rather than seduction. Part of his wife used power to serve herself, to get what she wanted. Joseph used his power to serve others. True success is knowing how to overcome the dangers of power. True success is knowing how to use power. An attractive woman can soon learn the power she has over men. How does she use that power? A leader realizes the kind of power he has over those under him. How does he use that power? Many have abused it. Long list. Mrs. Potiphar was a powerful woman. For Joseph to refuse her would be very risky business. We might say that she was used to getting her own way. She was used to getting what she wanted, right? People didn't say no to her. Well, except Joseph. Verse 8. But he refused. He Refused. File that away for now. We're going to come back to that later. Potiphar's wife doesn't give up that easily. Temptation hardly ever does. But listen, if it is wrong the first time, it is wrong every time. You hear the principle? If it is wrong the first time, it is wrong every time. And even though Joseph gave her a firm no, she keeps at it. She won't take no for an answer. Perhaps his refusal makes him even more desirable. We don't know. Her passion, though, is out of control. She is very, very persistent. Look at verse 10. It tells us, And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Day after 
day. One can only imagine what she said to him day after day. Joseph, just this once, no one will ever even know. Joseph, you're just the kind of guy I'm looking for. Joseph, my husband is never there for me. He doesn't understand me like you do. Joseph, God wants you to be happy. Do something for yourself for once, Joseph. And part of his wife was relentless day after day. If only she could get him alone. Verse 11. One day he went to the house to attend to his duties. None of the household servants was inside. Well, convenient. I wonder if she arranged it all. Okay, attendants, you, uh, you guys got something to do for me, please? I have some errands. Please get on the other side of the house right now. Just get them out of the way. We don't really know if she arranged all this, but Joseph and Mrs. Potiphar were all alone. Now you add to her sustained approach this aspect of secrecy, many would have fallen right here. As long as no one sees. Then why not? What's the big deal? I mean, society tells us that sex is just an appetite. And like any other appetite, you get hungry, you should eat. No other appetite gets so obsessive for us so quickly. One writer painted this scenario. I think you'll catch up to where he's going at as you listen to this scenario. He says, imagine finding a country where young guys go off to college and they plaster all kinds of posters on their walls of hamburgers, pizza, and sushi. And everyone runs from room to room looking at these posters. He says, imagine in this country you find people gathering in a room and paying money to watch someone slowly uncover cakes and pies. You'd assume that this country was filled with starving people, he said. You'd be astonished to find out that not only are they not starving, but the more they eat, the more they do this. You'd surely conclude this is an appetite out of control. You can't trust an appetite like this. It was Benjamin Franklin who said, it's easier to suppress the first desire than to satisfy all that follow it. And part of his wife was just... He was just using Joseph to feed her appetite for sex, to feed her power trip. Sex for her was an end in itself, and as we're going to see next week, Joseph simply becomes an unnecessary commodity and is discarded. She will soon turn on the one she took notice of. You see, your response to someone's refusal says a lot about your handling of the power given to you. If you get all worked out and you're all bent out of shape and all pouty and, and vengeful and manipulative when someone says no to your request, it just might be a good indication that you're using your power to serve yourself and not others. And we'll see, we'll see part of his wife's response next week, the price Joseph will pay for doing the right thing. But I want us to see a Joseph's true success of the way he handled his, his success and his handling his power See, true success is going the distance, holding on to our integrity. True success is going the distance, holding on to our integrity. All right, what's the pathway to true success then? 
What was it that he wouldn't surrender his integrity? What's the pathway of true success? Three points of application here, and you can apply it to any area of personal struggle that you have with temptation. Okay? Whatever it might be for you, fill it in with these three points of application. We're not just talking about sexual temptation here. Any temptation. All right. What's the pathway to true success? First of all, be resolved. Be resolved. You find the all begin with R here. Be resolved. Potiphar's wife was very clear in her intentions, and Joseph was equally clear in his response. But he refused. You see what he did here? He refused. No discussion, no flirtatious conversations, no standing there and listening of all the reasons this isn't a good idea. No, no, no. No dwelling on it. None. Dallas Willard nails it when he says, in a twisted sense, we enjoy temptation. We like to turn it over in our minds and think about how it would be if we gave in. And once that happens, he says, our feet are on the ice. A boy confessed to his dad, I've been having thoughts to do wrong things. The father asked, well, are you entertaining those thoughts? The boy replied, no, but they're entertaining me. (laughs) Right? There lies the problem. Joseph could have entertained the way she looked at him. After all, he'd been working out at the gym. Who could blame her? He could have used his upbringing as an excuse. He could have used his adversity as an excuse. He could have looked at the hand that was dealt to him and reasoned he had suffered enough. After all he had gone through, he deserved this little reprieve. He's on spring break. To be resolved, listen, is to say no to all the excuses. If you're going to be resolved, you can say no to all the excuses. For, in, for Joseph, in his mind, he, he, it was, he, he was settled. If he wasn't, he would have been swayed by his circumstances. Look at what he says in verse 8. With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. Now that is pretty heady stuff. For some people, having this kind of power would be an occasion to sin. To use that power to serve yourself and your needs. Not Joseph. He lived by principle. He was resolute in saying, my master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. Joseph makes it clear that she's off limits because she's married. I think also implied in his comment here is that she's off limits because she isn't Joseph's wife. See, sex is between two people who have promised to be exclusive to each other through marriage. And Joseph settled this matter before he encountered this temptation. And so must we if we are to have success and keep our integrity to the end and end in the finish line on the right horse. Now here's the kicker for Joseph. I want you to follow along when they look at verse 9. The end of verse 9. The end of verse 9. He says, how then could I do such a thing and face my boss every day? He doesn't say that. He says, how can I do such a wicked thing? Not wicked how we use it in New England. No, bad, evil, wicked. Not wicked, good. Wicked. 
How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I wish I was there more often. Right there. He's saying that sexual sin isn't just between two consenting people, it's against God. Joseph doesn't say here, it's just a matter of preference. This is what I just choose not to do, but other people, they may choose to do it. No, no, that's not what driving him here. He says it's a wicked thing. Joseph has a healthy fear of God. He isn't just saying, I can't commit this sin because of fear of what God might do to me. I don't think that's necessarily his thought because of how he words it here. He's fearful of what his actions will do to God. He's resolute in not wanting to sin against God. Now, listen. Don't make Joseph out to be this superhuman. He had desires. I mean, he was a young bachelor and a good-looking one at that. He had to be flattered by this woman who could have anyone she wanted but was hitting on him. He might have found her attractive. We don't know. But we do know that Joseph controls his actions. You see, the Bible does not say sexual desire is lust, or that sexual desire is wrong, but when the desire is out of control, it's wrong. Lust in the Bible means a desire that is out of order. And that's why we must be resolved. Which leads to the second point here, pathway to success. Not only be resolved, be realistic. Be realistic. We saw Mrs. Potiphar's approach was to be persistent, right? She spoke to Joseph day after day, hoping to wear him down. And verse 10 says that he refused, I want you to notice this, he refused to go to bed with her and to even be with her. Come on, Joseph. What harm is there in just being around her? I mean, you, he could spend time with her without doing anything improper. He could go out to dinner maybe and it doesn't have to lead to it. Maybe she could be his prayer partner. Maybe he's missing an opportunity to witness here. Joseph's smart enough to know better. He knows that to put himself where he might find temptation is to play with fire. And so he wisely determines not to even be with her. Because the pathway of true success over temptation is we must be realistic. To have a practical approach. He refused to even be with her. She has her morning coffee out on the deck. I'm having my coffee to go. She's on that side of the room this time of day doing this and that. I make sure I'm not over where she is. That's what he's saying. There's a saying that says, He who would not enter the room of sin must not sit at the door of temptation. Joseph did not coast on his past success here. He didn't say, you know, I resisted her last Saturday. Yesterday, I resisted her. I can, this is not an issue for me. I will now resist her today. No, no, no. He wasn't going to take the chance that he just might change his mind. <laughs> he chose not to even be with her. Now, in football, the success of the defensive line is greater when it's able to break up the play behind the line of scrimmage. Before the offensive play gets going, before it gains any momentum, the defense hopes to stop it behind the line of scrimmage. 
Not bad advice when it comes to temptation. Whatever that temptation is for you. Stop it behind the line of scrimmage. Stop it before it picks up speed. Before it gets going. Before you start to get over your head. See, the truth is that when it comes to temptation, we find ourselves not wanting to discourage it completely. Right? If we're honest. We linger. And we don't look for that way of escape. You might have heard about the guy, perhaps I've shared the story, who was trying to, to lose some weight, but he came to the office with a box of donuts. His co-workers asked him why he bought, all, bought the donuts if he's trying to lose some weight. And he answered, well, as I came to the corner where the donut shop was, I asked God, <laughs> I asked God that if he wanted me to buy some donuts, to have a parking space available right in front of the donut shop. <laughs> he said, wouldn't you know it, my eighth time around the block, there it was. <laughs> He's not looking for a way out. He's looking for a way in. Describe you? Me? See, God has not promised to get us out of trouble if we carelessly wander into it. We're not to test the Lord by putting ourselves into temptation and presume on God to bail us out. Read 1 Corinthians 10 this week. Don't test the Lord. In other words, be realistic. What are your trouble spots? When do you feel most vulnerable? How can you put into practice, refuse to even be with her? Refuse to even be with him? Refuse to be even around this? Whatever that is. Maybe it's a certain show. Maybe it's the way you use your downtime. Maybe it's the places you like to visit online. It may not be inherently wrong, but you know it's not good for you to even go there. Don't even be with or around that. And you go, but pastor, that's legalistic. No, that's not legalism. That's smart. That's smart. Be realistic. Be resolved. Thirdly, be radical. Be radical. Look at verse 12. She caught him by his cloak and he said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Well, Joseph, that's a little extreme. Well, we need to be when it comes to temptation. He lost his robe, he kept his integrity. He lost his robe, but he kept his integrity. And the King James translate that last phrase, ran out of the house, with three words. Got him out. And for some reason, I like that. Got him out. Don't reason with it. Don't think about it. Don't stand there and even claim some verses. Got him out. Flee. Run for your life. Get out of there. Don't play around with it. Leroy Imes offers this counsel. He says, rattlesnakes are fairly common where I live. He says, I encounter one almost every summer. It's a frightening experience to see a rattlesnake coiled, looking at you, ready to strike. It's lightning quick. He's, he's accurate. He says, I have a two-point program for rattlesnakes. Shun and avoid. Shun and avoid. You don't need much insight to figure out what to do with something as dangerous as an old diamondback rattler. You don't mess around. You're messing around? 
Messing with that, around with, with that which you know could potentially destroy you? Do you need a two-point program of shun and avoid? Listen, don't allow your desires to overturn your reason. Keep your head in it. For when your mind plays tricks on you, and it will, you'll need to run past the pleasure of satisfying that impulse to the pain and the guilt and the consequences that are on the other side. Keep your head in it. In the book, Complete Book of Running, James Fix says, the hardest part to running a marathon is your mind. Fix goes on to say, that he found in the early stages of becoming a marathon runner that what will happen in the midst of the marathon is that the fatigue will be so great that your mind will say, why did you ever start this race? What, what was it that you attracted you to distance running? And James Fix would say that he could never find a good answer as to why he wanted to. He goes on to say that one time he dropped right out of a marathon because his brain started to play tricks on him when the heat was on. The brain will decide to forget the reasons that you love running and the great benefits of running to your life. And he learned that one of the most important things to do if you're going to run and stick through the marathon to the end in the hard times is that beforehand you have to practically memorize the reasons you love running. You need to memorize the reasons so you can tell your brain that. He said... Now get this, if things get really bad and you can't remember those things during the race, he said that what he would do is trick his brain and say, I know when I get to the finish line, I will remember it. When I get to the finish line, I'll remember why I even love doing this. Because right now I have no idea why. When temptation strikes, we feel like giving in. Know there's a good reason And when we get on the other side of this temptation, we'll remember why it was a good idea not to give in. We may not be able to think clearly right in that moment, but we'll be glad later that we resisted. See, you want to run with integrity to the end? Be resolved, be realistic, be radical. That's True success. That's true success. Let's pray. God, we're told in your word that you have given us these examples, these true stories as warnings to us. They're not just, oh, that's a nice story. Oh, Joseph was a decent man. Or Joseph was able to overcome temptation. Yeah, we're to learn principles from his life, but it's bigger than that. It's supposed to speak into our lives and say that we too can run that same kind of race. We can hold on to our integrity to the end. doesn't matter where we're successful if we can't hold on to that. So God, do the work you want to do in our lives, personalizing what we have just read here, what we've seen in his life, And make that applicable to our life, whatever our situation, whatever personal struggle it is. Because we know one thing, Lord, what temptation promises it cannot deliver on. But what you promise, you can deliver on. And you tell us you'll be faithful. You tell us you'll be with us to the end. 
And so help us to hold on to and embrace that, that you are that faithful God who does provide that way of escape as we look for it and trust you with it. In Jesus' name, amen.